So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we are making our way through 1 Timothy. And you'll find out what I'm talking about in just a moment. Preaching to myself this morning. And uh, it may apply to you someday, one day, maybe never. But uh, it definitely applies to me this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 11. It says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and be in the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, and not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith of the pure conscience, but let these also first be approved, and let them be served as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things, and so forth. I want to concentrate this morning on the first seven verses. <clears throat> if a man desire the office of a bishop, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness once again. I pray, God, that you would guide my thoughts, my mind, my words. Uh, Lord, as we share this message this morning as we go through First Timothy. I ask God that you would speak to my heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk just for a little bit about my call to ministry and then see how it relates to what God's Word says in First Timothy chapter 3. I just want you to know right off the bat that I, uh, I, I chose to be a pastor because pastors only work one day a week. And uh, <clears throat> it works out really good. You ought to try it sometime. Uh, no, actually, it has nothing to do with it. We joke about it. Everybody jokes about it. You know, I mean, people who don't understand always joke about it. And in fact, numerous of David's friends over the years have come over to the house and says, uh, well, what do you do, Mr. Todd? Well, I'm a pastor. I know, but I know you're a pastor, but what do you do? And I, and I said, well, I, I work at the church and I, you know, help direct the, the functions of the church and, you know, disciple and, and preach and teach. Well, I know that, but what do you do? Because pastors don't really do anything. I mean, they just show up at this building and show up on Sunday and speak, right? I mean, they didn't have a concept. They didn't have an understanding of what was taking place. And they said, well, how do you get paid? Well, the church gives an offering. I know, but how do you get paid? I mean, they had no clue. And uh, I think sometimes people don't have a clue what pastors do. But uh, And I have to fully 100% admit that when I started this, I didn't have a clue. And sometimes I wonder if I still have a clue. Uh, but I, I do the best I can with what God's Word has taught me. But I want to show, go back to the point where God called me to ministry and see how that works with what it says in First Timothy chapter 3 and then see maybe if, uh, you, know, if uh, you can see God's call on a person's life. So first of all, I have to admit, um, I was in eighth grade. Eighth grade, from eighth grade on, I knew what I was going to do with my life. Um, I spent the summers, um, my first mission trip uh, was going into seventh grade. That, that, that summer between my sixth grade and my seventh grade year, I went on a mission trip to Canada, of all places. And uh, I said, well, Canada is not much of a mission trip. It was for me because where we went was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the closest uh, village, as we called it, that had a post office, 
and a little general store was about 30 miles away. And then beyond that, it was Sioux Lookout was, was about 50 or 60 miles away, and some other smaller towns and villages beyond that. It was primarily working with Native American Indians in North America. So we were literally out in the middle of nowhere. I went up that seventh grade year, and I spent a week up there, and uh, we were getting the place ready for the, the missionaries to do their summer work amongst the Native American Indian kids in the villages nearby. And uh, that, I thought it was just the greatest thing ever. Well, the second year, I went back going into eighth grade and uh, did the same thing all over again. Except for that week, it was completely different. Um, that week, as if I were the only kid at that on that mission trip, God was speaking to me. I remember it just as clear as if it happened 15 minutes ago. I remember Garland Cofield was preaching on Joshua and Caleb out of Joshua chapter 14 and talking about taking that mountain and trusting God to do and. And he just asked a question that evening in the lodge, in the chapel. And he basically said this, what does God want you to do? But regardless of what that may be, are you willing to do it? And I remember that night, I said yes to God. I remember thinking very clearly, as if it happened 15 minutes ago, that that night, I said, okay, God, whatever you want with my life, it's yours. It's yours. And very clearly, God began to direct my steps, which coincidentally was on a, a big ver- that verse of Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three was up on the wall inside the chapel at that camp, and it said, "The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way." And I remember thinking that verse. I saw it for years, never paid any attention to it, didn't know anything, know anything about what the verse really meant. But over the years, I could see how God has been directing my steps every step of the way. And I remember that day that as if it happened 15 minutes ago, I said yes to God. I walked out of the back door of the chapel. I walked down to the lake and there was this big rock that was about 10 foot round. It's flat, but you could only get to it by lifting up a big branch from a pine tree, crawling underneath it and then going there. Nobody else could see me. But I remember lifting up that branch, walking through that, sitting on that stone. I said, okay, God, my life is yours. If it means preaching, I'll preach. If it means being a missionary, I'll be a missionary. If it means being a factory worker, I'll be a factory worker. It does not matter. My life is yours. And from that moment on, there's never been a question, ever, of what God wanted to do with my life. Never. There's never been an option in my life of, wow, I wonder, I wonder what I should do. God made it clear to me that night. Now, it would be nice if God did that for everybody, right? I mean, you know, here's my next step, and here's my next step. But I just began to pray this prayer, Lord, open the doors that you want me to step through. Close the ones that you don't want me to go through. And one by one, God closed doors. And I remember thinking that following summer, I went back for two months, my ninth grade year, I went back for two months between my ninth and tenth grade year, I went back for two months between my eleventh and twelfth grade year, and I ended up spending most of my summers up there working as a summer missionary. And I remember thinking every time I got back at the end of the summer, I go away for two months, I come back, and I'm like, man, everybody's changed. Everybody's weird. It wasn't everybody else. It was me. And my, my youth pastor noticed that, and he looked at me and he says, Ken, it's not everybody else, it's you. God's doing a work in your life. And I remember thinking, yeah, but everybody else is just weird. He goes, no. He said, you're beginning to see what God's doing in your life, and you're noticing that everybody else is not on the same page at this moment. It was just different. It was just different. I can't, that's all I can explain. 
And I remember thinking, as I gave everything to God, it wasn't a question of what do I do? He made it clear what I was to do. He opened doors. He closed doors. And I love the fact that because I didn't have to wonder, what should I do next? I wonder where I should go. Um, and God began to work in my heart to prepare for ministry. It's like It wasn't like my senior year came, Nelson, I wonder where I should go to college. I wonder what I should major in. I wonder what I should do. God just opened those doors. And I said, you know what, from this point on, I'm going towards ministry, and if you make it abundantly clear that I shouldn't, then I'll change. But first and first dibs is on you. You get first dibs. And God began to do a work in my life. It was at this point, early in ministry, that God began to convince in my mind, in my heart, that there is a difference between a call and a choice as a career. I say it often. There's a difference between a call of God on your life versus a career choice. And I believe that difference between a call and the choice is what determines the longevity and of maybe to some extent the success of ministry. I know a lot of people who have quit along the way. I think the end result, and that is whether one, whether one stays in ministry for the long haul or not, is determined in part by how struggle and difficulty is handled. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen examples of what not to do as a pastor. Um, I think all of us have been hurt by pastors. Anybody not? Anybody been hurt by a pastor before? Anybody? Yeah. Lots of people. Lots of people are hurt by pastors. But that's not the picture of what God wants. It's not the picture of how God wants to use a person in ministry. Um, I know that I've been hurt by pastors. I think all of us have. But how you respond to difficulty, how you respond to struggle, in part determines how long you end up in ministry. Over the last, I guess this year, it be 25 years for us in ministry, I've watched people come and go. I've watched people serve for a year or two, three years, have a bad experience, they're out. Someone else, four, five, six years, they can't handle it, they get out. And I remember thinking to myself, are they called or was it a career choice? Does God just uncall somebody? Maybe he does. I, I'm not 100% on that. I don't think so. But if God calls, I believe he fulfilled that calls. Because he who starts a work will complete it. And I think the area of ministry is part of that. But I watched a lot of people come and go. I watched a lot of people who were convinced by somebody because they were a good speaker or maybe because they were good with kids, or maybe they were good musically, that they should go into ministry for whatever reason. And the thought that has often come to my mind is, well, if you're good at all that stuff, what do you need God for? I don't have to depend on God if I'm already good. I don't have to depend on God if I'm already talented. I don't have to depend on God if I'm already skilled in these areas. But when the skill runs out, then I guess I'll find something else to do. The end result is whether one stays in ministry for the long haul or not is partly determined how the struggle and difficulty is handled. We all have struggles. And I think that's where the calling kicks in for me. It's not a career choice. 
I hope you know that it's not a career choice for me because there's a lot of other careers that would be a little easier at times. I know people who say, man, I go home, I work my 8 to 5, I'll go home and don't bother me anymore until next morning at 8 o'clock. That doesn't work that way in ministry. And I wouldn't want it to. Really wouldn't want it to. But I know this. There have been many men aspire to the position. That's what it talks about here in First Timothy chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires, and the word desires really can be translated aspires to. There's, there's circumstances that are in place, and he thinks that maybe this is what God has for me. So, I personally believe there are several factors to consider whether or not one is truly called to ministry. If a man should truly desire the office of a pastor or bishop, whatever. Number one, is there truly a burden? So what does that matter? Burden to me, and this is my opinion, is I want to versus I have to. It's a want to versus have to. Because I have a burden for my church, I want to serve them. I want to help you grow. I want to help you move forward in your walk with God. I want to be there when you need someone to encourage you. I want to be there to walk through your struggles with you. I want to. It's not because I have to. If it's a job, if it's a career choice, then I have requirements I have to fulfill. Then the bottom line is I have to do that because it's written in the job description. But when it's your burden, it's not a job requirement. You do it because it's natural. When you have a burden to help somebody, you don't have to do that. A burden, well, so you have a burden, I don't. So you feel bad about the homeless kids, I don't. So you want to help the down and outers? I don't. Right? If it's a burden, it's something you want to do. You don't have to do it. Nobody's compelling you to do it. It's something you choose to do. But if you have a job, and the job requirements say you have to do these things, then it's a requirement that you have to check off. So the first question I ask is, is it truly a burden? Do you want to help? Do you want to serve? Do you want to meet needs? Number two, did God back up the call with a scripture that spoke personally to you? I watched in invitation services for years, someone give an invitation, and I literally witnessed a man say, if you don't call to God, respond to God's call to preach right now, you'll never amount to anything. You'll just be a wimp your entire life. I watched a preacher say that until he got the number of people to stand up, and then the service was over. And I say, Did God really call? Or is that a man call? I believe that when God calls, He backs it up with Scripture. The Scripture that God used in my life was Joshua 14. And God had a plan as if the Holy Spirit was speaking to me as if I was the only one in the room. Number three, has God confirmed the call through various circumstances? Has He opened doors to guide you in a direction, and is He shutting some doors to keep you out of this direction? Is God using circumstances in your life to open doors and close doors? He did that with me. In fact, early on in ministry, my wife and I, as we got married right after college, Bible college was over, all these offers started coming. To go here, to go here, to go here, to go here. Well, this one has a better pay, but this one has better better benefits, and this one has... And you start comparing these all from a physical human standpoint, right? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit slaps you upside the head. It's like, wait a minute. What determines where you're going and what you're doing? 
Because if I'm led by the dollar, well, I guess that's the best choice. If I'm led by the benefits, that's the best choice. If I'm led by the service opportunities, this is the best opportunity. If I'm led, what, what determines what direction you go? We very simply started praying this. If you believe God would have us to be part of this ministry, you pray with me that he'll shut every other door. Shut every door and, and slam it shut. So that the only door left open is the one that he wants us to go through. And we started praying that. And what we thought we were going to do was moving out to New England to set up a boy's home. Door slammed shut. And shut hard. And we're like, Lord, what are you doing? I thought this was so clear. No, that's not what he had. So we thought, well, maybe it's this one. No, that door shut. And we thought it was this one. No, that, that door shut. There was five opportunities and four of those doors slammed shut within a period of about a month. You know the one that was left open? Teaching in a Christian school. And I thought to myself, oh, good Lord, are you serious right now? i got to speak, i got to teach English? My English is atrocious. Are you serious right now? Yeah, for a year, I, I taught English for one year. That was my uh, negotiation point on year two is I got rid of English. <laughs> but for those two years, I thought, why did God lead me to teach in a Christian school? That's the last thing on my list. But it was the door he left open. And it was the door that God had me to go through to learn ministry. Every Wednesday I met in the pastor's office. And he discipled me. And worked with me and taught me. And poured his life into mine. Every Wednesday. And many Wednesday nights I led the service. A lot of Sundays I taught the youth. I was a Christian school teacher. But that's where I learned ministry. And I got out of English and choir the second year. That was a good one too. God was good. But he worked through circumstances. And then number four, have others of God's people affirm the call. There's an amazing thing that God does through other believers. I've met several people who say, well, I'm called to preach. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. But they haven't been called to preach. And I look around and I say, Have anyone else, has anyone else affirmed this? Is God working through other people to say, man, that message was a blessing. That message spoke to my heart. That message helped me. The word of God that you used just spoke to me very clearly. I believe that God will affirm the call through people. So, but it says there, if a man desires, if he aspires to it, the office of a bishop, and the bishop here is this, means overseer or superintendent. It means the one who's in charge. That's a scary thing. You say, well, is that, is that something that you really want to be large and in charge? No. That's not something that's always easy because guess what? The buck stops there. And I'm telling you what, over the years, God has humbled me a few times. And... um worked in my heart to teach me what needs to be done. Because there's sometimes I don't know what needs to be done. I have an idea, just like you have an idea, but you're going to stand before God for it. And then there's times if someone comes up to you and says, well, Pastor, I think we should as a church do. And I'm thinking, I am not seeing that. <laughs> Nowhere did I see anything like that. <laughs> and someone says, but God told me to. Uh, I'm just not seeing it. 
And it could be very well that God wants us to do that, but to stand before God to give an account one day for every decision we make. So what does it look like when God says, if a man desire this position to be the overseer, to be the one in charge, to be the person that will stand and give an account? Well, before I get there, I want to read a verse in Acts uh, chapter 20. And I'm almost there. Verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. In every place that God had a church, he established elders. And those elders would be important to the key roles of what would take place in that in those churches. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Why? Because we'll give an account. And the thing that stands in, stands in my mind there when it says shepherd has the idea of what? That he is going to lead the sheep... And the sheep are going to what? Follow. But what if I don't like the pastor? What if I don't like how he leads us? What if he's just a jerk? Take it up with God. And pray that God will either remove him, me, or work in his heart to change his heart. Pastors can be very arrogant. I hope that's not the case with me. Pastors can be know-it-alls. I hope that's not the case. Pastors are like farmers. They tend to not like to work for other people. But the problem is that's not how God designed it. So it should be a team with a coach, with a captain, and so forth. So what are these characteristics that we see in First Timothy chapter 3? Um, I, I've seen at least 14 in this passage. So if you'll hold on, I won't, I won't spend a ton of time on every one of them, but I'm going to jump on a few of them. The first one, it says blameless. A bishop then must be blameless. What is the idea behind blameless? I mean, are you supposed to be sinless? No, I'm not sinless. Um, bottom line is, it means irreproachable. It means not characterized by sinfulness. Uh, there's nothing to take a hold of. If someone were to come to come to the pastor and say, "Boy, why is this sin in your life?" It's not something that's supposed to be obvious that they are struggling with and are not getting victory over. It does not mean sinless, because I promise you, I'm not sinless. I promise you, I'm not without fault. I promise you, I'm doing the best I can to live a holy and righteous life, but I'm not sinless. But I hope that there are not patterns of sinfulness in my life that are obvious and glaring there is talk to me about it but it says first they must be blameless secondly says the husband of one wife or literally means one woman man goodness i don't know how you handle more than one um (laughs) maybe that should be the other way around i don't know how she handles more than one Uh, i know i'm so thankful for the wife that god gave me she's awesome she's the best pastor's wife ever on the face of God's earth. 
I've met numerous ones, and I say, I often, I say it all the time to myself, thank God that's not my pet, my wife, <laughs> with other pastors. Um, I know pastors, and this is the God-honest truth. They have this opinion. Church hired me. They didn't hire my wife, period. And that's true. They didn't, you didn't hire my wife, but here's how far they take it. My wife doesn't go to church. My kids don't go to church. They do their own thing. In fact, I know pastors whose wives go to a different church than the one they pastor. Oh, yeah, I'm not kidding you. It's happened here in this town. I'm so thankful that God gave me a wife who loves God and loves me. And she loves you. And she gives her life for you guys. There are many times where I'd say, man, I'm ready to go to bed. And she's got three more things to do. I was like, honey, it's, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but we have this tomorrow. And she sacrifices. I'm so thankful for that. Husband and one wife, literally a one-woman man. And uh, I'm so thankful that God gave us one person that we can live life with and together and do ministry together with. Number three, temperate. says a bishop must be blameless, husband and one wife, temperate. The idea behind temperate means self-control or moderation, self-restraint. The idea of being vigilant. Some of your translations may say vigilant. But it's the idea of self-control. We have restraint. Um, I'm thankful that God did not make me a school teacher. Um, because I know those little kids that God loves would push every button in my book. And I don't have to enforce restraint. Uh, no. We should have self-control. We should have self-restraint. We should be have the ability to say no. I have to be honest here. This is a, this was a struggle for me. Um, for years, I struggled with the very fact that I'm going to stand up before you as a big guy. For years, I struggled with that. You know, I'm preaching on, you shouldn't have this sin in your life, and you shouldn't have this sin in your life, and you shouldn't have this sin. And I had this vision of everybody staring back at me. He goes, but you're a fat pig. I struggled with that. Do people not think I have self-control? Do people think that I don't have no, no restraint? And then I think to myself, well, what if they're right? That's something I need to work on. That's something I struggle with because I thought, man, now whether or not anyone else ever thought that didn't matter. It's what I thought you thought. And I struggle with that. And then God began to say, you know what? It's not, listen, there are issues. And then there are some issues. Some of them are medical. Some of them are self-indulging. Some of them are for whatever reason. But if a man is going to stand up, he's got to have self-control and self-restraint. And so we work at it. My wife asked me a question. I went to LA Fitness for a whole year. And I got in the pool. And my wife says to me one day, she goes, do you enjoy going swimming at LA Fitness every morning? I looked at her and I said, good Lord. I said, look at me. Does this look like a body that wants to take its shirt off in front of everybody? Come on now. No, I don't enjoy it. I know better than to scare the water out of the pool. No, you struggle with it. But why do you do it? Self-restraint. Self-control. Learn to keep the body under subjection. Learn to, to do better. We work hard at it. 
Because God's Word tells us to. Number four, hospitable, generous to guests. Generous to people who are even strangers. It literally means to love the stranger. I have thrown my wife some doozies over the years. Oh, by the way, honey, I invited so-and-so over. She'd love to have so-and-so over, but she probably would have liked a little bit of more forewarning. But over the years, I have given her some... Oh, by the way, we got seven more people coming over. Um, when did you do this? Oh, half hour ago. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's part of us. Never met a stranger. People always said to me, well, Pastor, it's easy for you to be a witness. It's easy for you to share the gospel. It's easy for you to do this. You just, you've never met a stranger. Anybody ever had that thought about me? I can talk to anybody in any line, at any bank, at any grocery store, at any gas station. It is true. It's where David gets it. But it doesn't mean you're not without fear. It doesn't mean that you're not without, I wonder what I should say. It's just, some people have a gift of gab. I guess I got it. I don't know. But generous. We strive to be generous. It's who God made us to be. Right, wrong, or otherwise. It defines us. Or should define us. Then it says, able to teach. Skillful in teaching is what it means. In fact, this is really one of the biggest differences between a pastor or bishop and a deacon. This apt to teach is not found in the deacon list. It's a bonus. It's a plus when they can. But pastors are supposed to be able to teach. And so because of that, we continue to learn. We continue to grow. We continue to stretch ourselves to learn how to work better with communicating. I'm so glad that I'm not the person that I used to be. I remember the first time I preached, and I was sharing this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. I remember we had youth night at our church where the youth took and did the service. And uh, I remember one night, three of us were scheduled to preach. Three teenagers were scheduled to preach. And my first message was I was 13 years old. And I remember coming into our auditorium, several hundred people there, but you know, it was kind of a light night. You know, it was kind of a Sunday evening service. There weren't very many people there. And, and I'm thinking, cool, we don't have a full house. And a few minutes later, I'm sitting on the front row and I'm talking to everybody around me. And all of a sudden, pastor calls my name and I stand up. I'm like, holy schmoly, this place is packed. And like a good neighbor, uh, my youth pastor was sitting there counting the number of times I said, um. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Um, well, um, um, um. So my next objective became to preach a message without saying um 28 times. And then my second objective was to take that 40-minute message I prepared and do it better than eight minutes. Everybody ever done that before? You prepare a 35, 40-minute message, you get up, it's eight minutes because you've said everything there is to say, and I'm not recapping, I'm done. I remember those first few messages. But God began to teach us how to communicate and teach us how to stand in front of a congregation and sometimes present a good message. Number six, not given to wine. Has the idea of being sober, sober-minded. In other words, there is a seriousness about who you are as a person. In other words, it has the idea of drinking too much. It's not the idea of abstinence. 
It's the idea of being under the control of. And I will jump on this one just for a moment. And Sammy's like, oh, no, he's going to do it. Yes, I am, just for a moment. Say, Pastor, do you drink? No, I don't. Will you drink? No, I won't. Say, why not? I'm sure you have a big biblical dissertation for it. Nope, I really don't. In fact, my personal reasoning is not even a biblical reason. I'm a big guy, just in case you haven't noticed that. Turn sideways, you still see me. I'm a big guy. All through my life, if one hot dog is good, three is better. Right? Anybody agree with me? Come on now. If one hot dog good is three is better. If one cheeseburger is good, three is better. If one Coke is good, right, you get the concept. If one beer is good, three beers are better. I just know me. I know me. I don't know that I could control it. I would like to think I would never have a problem with it. I could have one beer, two beer, three beer, and call it good. I don't know that. Because of my track record with food and beverages, I don't want to put myself in that situation. Because if I like it, I'm buying it. You know what my new kick is? Diet orange tea from Wegmans. Every time I walk by there, I grab two bottles of it. I love, I love diet orange tea. Just proves my point. I don't just walk by and get one. I grab two. Because I want it there. But if you're a pastor... You're not to be given to much wine. You shouldn't be controlled by it. Why? Because there's a seriousness about what you're doing. And one could argue the point biblically that shouldn't go too far with it. But it's not talking about abstinence. It's talking about giving into it and being controlled by it. And you have my promise. You're not going to have to worry about that with me. But it goes on here. Not violent. And this has the idea of has a good behavior. He's not a striker. He's not looking for a fight. Not looking for, well, I'll get into the next one there. I remember the first time I sat in a pulpit committee search for a pastoral position. It was in Tippecanoe, Indiana. And uh, looking back, I didn't want to go there. I was completely happy as an assistant pastor in Elkhart, Indiana. And they kept calling me to fill pulpit over here at this church at Tippecanoe. And I'm like, who are these people? I don't even know where Tippecanoe is. Come to find out, it was 50 miles from me. I had no idea it was even there. But they called me like four times. And finally, I told the guy, I said, why are you calling me? I said, i got my own responsibilities on Sunday. I can't just like walk away from doing what i got to do on Sunday just to go fill you because you got no pastor. And I'm like, why, why are you bothering me? And so... My wife and I said, you know, I told my pastor, and he goes, well, go, go have a conversation with him. See what, see what happens. So my wife and I drove down there one night, middle of the night, tried to figure out where Tippecanoe even was. And we went there, and long story short, we ended up going there. But I remember the pulpit committee meeting night. I'm sitting around with like 12 people in a circle around a, in a room. So they got all the flowery stuff out of the way, right? You know, where you come from, what's your testimony, what... What have you been doing in ministry? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then they got onto like some personal stuff. How dare they? So what do you struggle with? And I facetiously threw something out. <laughs> it was the best thing to do. So what do you struggle with? Well, if you make me mad, I'm going to deck you. Yeah, I said that. And one of the ladies in the room goes, 
I will never forget. And I said, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to hit anybody. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just joking. But I made my point. I'm not perfect. I'm going to struggle just like you are. I'm not sinless because I'm a pastor. If you cut me, I bleed red just like you. I'm just a person, a sinner, saved by grace, still in need of a Savior, just like you. Not perfect. So, part of the characteristic of a pastor is that he ought not be violent. And going on, it says, not greedy for money. In other words, it has the idea that he's not looking for an undue amount. He's not looking for, he's not a, uh, oh, how can we say it? Not eager of ill gain funds. He's not using the church and the people just, just to get every penny he can possibly get. I'm so thankful for all you treat, treat me as your pastor. I am so thankful for everything that you do for us. I am grateful for it. I appreciate it so much. You've allowed me to cover my expenses and to do things and to have, have an enjoyable life. I'm so thankful for that. And I'm appreciative of that. Thank God for that. But we're not to be gruddy, greedy for money. Number nine, gentle. Has the idea of being patient. Are we patient? I wish I could say I better. I was better at that at times in my life. And there's been times when I haven't been as patient, as gentle. But it should be something that we work on. Number 10, not quarrelsome. In other words, not a brawler looking to fight. He's not contentious. He's more of a peacemaker. He's not looking for a good argument. And trust me, over the years, I've had all kinds of people who want to come into office and argue. There's nothing more I'd rather do than just say, you know what, you're right. No. You're wrong and I'm right. But where does it get you? Where does it get you when you argue with somebody? Person, how does that phrase go? Persuaded against his own will is of the same opinion still? I'm probably saying that wrong. But there's a lot of things I can't convince people of. Doesn't mean I won't try but I'm not going to argue. There was a day when I would have. Probably not so long ago. But we're not to be people who are quarrelsome, brawlers looking to fight. And then number 11, very similar to number 8, not covetous, not a lover of money or things. I'm telling you, there's so many things I'd love to have, just like you. But we have to keep that in the context of being content, right? Right? All of us. I would love looking at our church to say, well, we got one of these, we got one of those, I mean, our church has this. Don't think pastors don't get jealous of other pastors' buildings. I won't say churches because it's not the church. It's the building that the church meets at. But there are times I say, I wish we had one of those. In fact, I'd like to have a couple of those. <laughs> But we don't. We're not covetous. We'll say thank you for what God gives us. Pray for what he may want us to have. Number 12. Rules his house well. In other words, his house is in order. He presides well over it. He protects it. I'm going to say something just for a moment. And I hope that you'll oblige me just for a moment. God has blessed me with my kids. I talk to people on a regular basis whose kids are disrespectful, rude, 
arrogant, selfish. I'm blessed. I'm so thankful. I, I walk out this yesterday and I see the work that's done and and I'm gonna bra- I'm gonna brag on them just for a moment. When the trees fell down with the wind, first one out there was my kid. I didn't ask him to do it. He grabbed a chainsaw and went to it. I appreciate that. I appreciate what God has done in the hearts of my kids. Because it's not always easy. There's always somebody who's got an opinion about your kids as a pastor. There's always somebody who say, well, your kid was wearing this. Your kid's done that. Your kid's doing this. And we never ask the question, how's the heart? How's the heart? David's watching, so David just closes it for a minute. I've said for years, my kids didn't give me five minutes of headache. They really haven't. They really, honest to God, have not. I've never sat up for nights on nights just thinking, why is my kid doing this? God has blessed me. But I said, uh, when my kids have not given me 10 minutes of headache, David gave me 10 minutes. <laughs> In my home, and I hope that you don't take this wrong, my kids all went through a phase where they wanted to get earrings, probably like some of your kids did. And I said, I told David, I said, if you ever come home with an earring in your head, I'm going to rip your ear off. He's probably sitting there laughing in Houston now. But I said, I don't want you wearing earrings. Well, why not? Because I said so. Do I need to say anything else? But I said, if you ever come home with them, I'm going to rip your head off. He came home with them one day. And I'm not kidding you. I thought just for a millisecond that those are those magnetic ones that are a joke. And I took two steps towards him. And he goes, I'm like, I'm ripping your head off. And I was dead serious. Ask my wife. I was not in the spirit. I was not controlled by God. I was in the flesh. And I went over there and I said, and he goes, Mom, Mom, tell, Mom, tell Dad to get back. He was, he, he knew I was serious. That was my 10 minutes of headache with him. But here's what I have to remember. The kid's a soul winner. The kid loves Jesus. He's not missed a week of church since he's moved down there. He's got friends that he's witnessing to on a regular basis. Kid drives me nuts sometimes. He's like a fart in a skillet. I mean, it's just boom, 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 boom. He's always that kid that while I'm doing this activity, he's already planning the next one. And while he's there, he's planning the next one. That kid won't sit still for two seconds. I don't know where he gets it from. Um, But there are times in our life we have to ask ourselves, are we doing what we can to nurture not just the outward actions, not just the outward appearance, but the heart? David is the one that oftentimes, and I'm not saying it's not true of my other kids because I believe it is, but if you walk in his room, his page is always turned on a different Bible page. He's reading. He's studying. He's growing. And he talks to me about it from time to time, what he's learning. So what's the earring? I don't know. He thinks they're cool. I don't know. doesn't do anything for me. But say, oh, what if I got them? Relax. I don't care. I just had this issue because I grew up in a phase, in a time period when you didn't do that. Why? I don't know. Because you just didn't. Because Dad said so. No other reason needed. Dad said so. So I thought that was my argument. Dad said so. So honor it. What's the heart? Have we, in ruling our house well, captured the heart? And I'm thankful for the hearts that my kids have.
Not a novice. Number 13. The 13th thing he listed. Not a novice. And this is interesting to me. Because one of the first things we want to do when we see someone come to know the faith is start serving. It's a great thing, right? How can serving be bad? Serving's bad when you don't know how to serve in leading people. And so we have in our area even pastors who have only been saved for a year and all of a sudden they're ordained ministers. That's a struggle for me. Because God's Word says they're not newly saved. They're not newly converted. They're not newly new to the faith. So not an office means you're not a beginner. You're not a... I look at this and I think sometimes I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I don't. I feel that way sometimes. If I knew what I was doing, and I, think, I, and I say this often to those who write books about church ministry, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them on how to do this in church ministry and how to do this in church ministry. And I'm thinking to myself, if you really knew what you're doing, you'd have wrote, wrote the book before you did it. No, I write the book and then tell everybody what I did. Yeah, no. It's not a novice means that you have experience. You've grown. You've put yourself underneath somebody. You've learned from them. And let me just say this. There are people that have been in ministry much, much longer than I have that I call on a regular basis. Because I want to learn. I want to keep growing. I don't want to be a novice. I don't want to be inexperienced. I want to help. I want the help that I need to make every choice that needs to be made in the church. Yes, I have the Holy Spirit. Yes, I have the Bible. But I also want the wisdom of men who have gone on before me. And I want to learn from them, grow from them. And then the last thing. It says here in verse... I can't find the verse. Verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. You should have a good testimony as a pastor. You should have a good testimony. What do you stand for? Do our neighbors know who we who we are, what we stand for? Or am I just that jerk that says, get off my property, this is church property? Am I that guy who all the people in the back who throw their clippings over the fence on our side? Am I that guy who says, you're a jerk. Quick, keep, keep your clippings on your side of the fence. We should have a good testimony. When, they, when our names are mentioned, they should, they, we should get along well with them. And by God's grace, we have. I don't think we have any people around us right now that are just, man, that pastor's a jerk. That shouldn't be the case with us. Say, well, Pastor, what, what's all this for? Because this is what I'm striving to be in front of you. This is what I'm trying to be, a picture of what God says should be in the life of a pastor. And then it goes on, says, likewise. Likewise. You know what that means? In the same manner. In the same fashion. What's the next word? Deacons. Deacons. Guess what? Same things are supposed to be in your life. As in the life of a pastor. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be proved, and then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. And likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Man, I'm just telling you, I've met some pastor's wives who, ugh, loud, boisterous, gripers, complainers, 
as my wife says, negative Nellies just constantly want to just keep something stirred up. And it says, like wives, their wives must be reverent. So deacons' wives have an obligation to hold to certain standards as well. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great in the mystery of godliness, there's a standard that we hold to. Is it just because it's a job description? No. Because quite honestly, most of these characteristics can be said of any child of God elsewhere in Scripture without the word overseer in front of it. Why? I think part of it is because God expects a certain standard from us, right? All of us. And secondly, because we have a testimony to hold with those outside, right? And we have to be gentle and kind towards those that are within. God's Word is just full of these passages. But here's what you can do. And I'll covet it till the day I die. Pray for me. You can talk about me all you want, as long as you do it before God. I, I wish that. There's an old Southern Gospel song. So you can talk about me as much as you please, as long as you do it down on your knees. Talk about me. Bring me before God. I need His wisdom. I need His his grace and His mercy to be the person that I ought to be before His people. I covet that. I'm not perfect. There are times I look back, man, how could I just say that? I should have never said it. I should have never used that tone. And God convicts me. The Holy Spirit convicts me and i got to change it. i got to repent. But I need your prayers. I need your prayer daily. I need you to be begging God to work in my midst so that when I stand up before you, it's not just shooting the breeze. I swear to you, there are pastors who get their messages every week off the Internet because there's tens of thousands of them on there. I know people in this area who were basically called on the carpet for copying messages off the Internet, almost word for word, in this area. Somebody in their church found out that Oh, wow, these last three messages seem awfully familiar. <laughs> and they went and got looked at the transcription of it. It's like, wow, uncanny familiar. <laughs> it happens. But by God's grace, I don't do that. That's why I want to continue growing and learning, taking classes, so that we can be filled with the Spirit, know how to read God's Word, and teach it. So pray for me. All you want you can't pray too much. But by God's grace, these are the characteristics I want to hold to as God's man in this pulpit. Let's pray.